happening now. We want to welcome our listeners from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I'm joining you from fabulous Missoula, Montana, where I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in Missoula, Montana. I'm also the tech-savvy administrator in residence for the Northwest Council for Computer Education. And joining me, as always, tonight... Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening. Wes, how are you this evening? Good evening. I am going to invent some wild stream of impressive sounding titles. The Lord of Genomics in Oklahoma. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm the director of technology at the Cassidy School and am pleased to get to to join this week. And I will not be taking uh, a month of, of touring time, but I will be absent next week. So, Jason, you'll have to let us know if you want to. You could go solo as well. That's kind of an interesting experience. It's a lot more fun with guests. But yeah, anyway, ne- next week, I'm excited to be attending the Atlas Conference, which is a conference for independent school directors, tech coaches, and other technology support staff in beautiful Los Angeles, California, in Burbank. So looking forward to that. Awesome. Well, um, lots going on, as usual, in the world of technology. And so let's take a look. Um, at how it might apply uh, to classrooms and schools around the world. Wes, you want to start us off tonight with a link? You bet. I'll just start us off at the top. And for those that may not know, you can find all these links at edtechsr.com slash links. And this is from Ars Technica on April 18th. iWork and iLife apps are now free for old and new Mac and iOS users. So this is... You know, good news if you are an iOS or Mac user. Um, there have been eras where these were paid apps, and, and at some point, you know, if you bought a new iPad after a certain point, you could download them free, but it was kind of tricky, and I never really got that worked out real well with our mobile device manager at school because you needed to download them from an iTunes um account, you know, from that device, and you couldn't really just push it as a free app. And so anyway, uh, I know that that will make my life a little bit easier as a technology director. Um, But honestly, I do not use those apps that much. Uh, When I do use a word processor, I'm still using Word. I'm using Scrivener to, you know, put together this new um, nonfiction book that I'm working on. And I'm uh, using Google Docs most of the time when I'm word processing. So how about you? Will will this have an impact on your life and those educators you know, Jason? Um, Likely not. And and part of what has been very interesting to me is that it feels like that, um, you know, iWork and and iLife have been largely abandoned by Apple. I know there were, um, you know, some minor updates to this. In fact, we were on an earlier episode last year when they did announce uh, updates. We were a little shocked because it seemed like, um, the I work and, and, and I life had all, been all but abandoned, but I, for a long time, I was an exclusive, um, keynote user. I had done all my presentations in keynote and because I felt like it had a really beautiful graphic design component to it. So it was easy to make nice dynamic slides. Whereas, um, uh, PowerPoint and slides in, in the Google app suite were not as, as functional for the real graphically intensive slides that I, I, I was starting to move towards as a more, uh, presentation zen style presenter. Um, but, you know, I'm a little more cross platform than I was a couple of years ago first and second. Um, I felt as if both PowerPoint and slides started catching up with and then ultimately moving ahead of keynote and so for me it was it, that was really the only one of of really the entire suite of of the iwork applications 
that had distracted me from, um, uh, you know, PowerPoint or I'm sorry, from Microsoft Office or Google Apps. So it's, I mean, I, I think it's a good, I think it's a smart move on Apple's part uh, to to make them free to everyone. I don't know who really this impacts other than scenarios like yours, Wes, where you're taking devices old and new and trying to get the applications pushed out uh, meaningfully. But, you know, I, Apple's got to figure it out. Well, you know, I've undergone an interesting transition with regard to sharing files um, in, with presentations and, and also the platform of choice. I mean, from 2009 to 2013, I was a full-time independent consultant, you know, presenting and going to conferences, workshops, et cetera. Uh, definitely keynote user. Um, and I don't know, it's only been in the last, I would say, two years that I have transitioned fully to Google Slides. I was using a workflow where I would create in Keynote, uh, embed a lot of video. Um, part of the reason for that was I, I got burned, as I'm sure many of us have doing presentations in other places, when the Internet did not work or things were blocked. And so I needed to have my files downloaded offline, my video files downloaded offline. And it was just all in the can. And it just gives you such, you know, confidence when you know, hey, everything is on this machine. The Internet itself can go down and we're still going to have a presentation with with media. And what's happened is, number one, um, well, and then, so then I would take my slides, export them as a PDF, upload them to SlideShare, which I love, I still do. Sometimes I would take the audio and make that a slide cast or whatever, you know, with the synchronized audio. I haven't done that for years. Uh, Google Slides has gotten better. Um, internet speeds have gotten more reliable, but also cell phones for tethering and mobile hotspots have really factored in. So I have the confidence in general, sometimes not if I'm in a you know really rural school, but I don't do that that much. I, I barely, you know, I'm, uh, you know, out, out there doing presentations. So uh, anyway, that ability to say, yeah, I can just tether my phone and, you know, with LTE, I can have pretty good confidence that that YouTube is going to be fine, you know, even if something's blocked, um, has just changed the workflow. And and also it's a matter of modeling. You know, I'm very happy to be modeling uh, for teachers at my school as well as for others to say, hey, Google's collaboration tools are fantastic. And by the way, it's no skin off anyone's back to just say, share the link, you know, create a shortened URL, have a QR code, you know, share share the, the, the slides out there. I know some people are very possessive of those and there's some, you know, professors and instructors who, you know, are still very much wanting students to be in the mode of, of text capture and notes. Um, I'm certainly of the mind that I want to try to get people to think and I want people to be, uh, if, if it helps them for their learning, to have those while they're listening, fantastic. Um, but probably it's, it's after the fact and it's a matter of a ripple effect of, of reaching more people and potentially having those ideas shared, you know, further by, by having them available. And it's so, it's so easy with Google to, you know, share the link, to click publish on the slideshow, to embed that on a website. And I am a, you know, big advocate for digital sharing. So I don't think this is going to, going to have much of an impact. I'm, I, I have opened Keynote before, but usually it's just to show a shortened link to, you know, all the resources or something like that, you know, for a slideshow if I need to do something locally. Absolutely. And, and Wes, let me ask you, a couple of years ago, Apple uh, made the iWork suite available online. So there's a, a, a web-based version of it. Did, did, that have, did that have any impact on you at all? I never really even tried it and put it through its paces. You know, Apple has done so poorly with online and they've also been short lived. I mean, I'm still 
holding a grudge, but it's my own fault for when um, Dot Mac, you know, got taken down. I I didn't take my stuff out. It shouldn't have caught me by surprise, but that, that really is a was a painful thing, you know, losing web space and, and those kind of things. A- Apple just has really struggled to do that. Um, they started off, you know, with with the iMac and this idea of the mobile hub of the home and how you were going to you know, have this device that would that would be your computer that was the center of of your digital universe. Um, but the way that that Google and, and now we see Microsoft with 365, you know, moving, I think, to do a pretty good job of the cloud. Apple has wanted to be in that space, but I don't think that they've done that effectively. In part because they tend to want people to be wedded to the platform, and so right. in some cases, you know, it's going to work on the Mac. You're going to, you know, sharing a link to have someone join an iCloud album better be using the mail app on your you know Mac computer because you can't be in Gmail and Chrome even on a Mac or much less on another device. And so they've just had that, that difficulty. And like you, I find myself being more cross-platform. I love my Mac. I'm on my Mac right now. I want to see Apple, you know, continue to, to um, innovate and not lose their pro users and, and all of that. But it um, we're definitely on a plateau when it comes to the productivity software. And I think that Apple has lost its mojo and push that they had at one time to try to say, and we even have salespeople do this, hey, don't don't worry about Microsoft Office. You can just use iWork. I don't know, though, but from a school standpoint, this is on a practical level. You don't have to buy these things at all now, right? So if you want to provide software for your teachers, and this is going to be an issue at some point when, you know, Microsoft and we look at renewing licenses and stuff like that. Prior to my arrival as the tech director, I just talked to someone yesterday about this. You know, they had wanted to fully move to Google, not have Microsoft and you know, they had pushback and, and so they, you know, kept Microsoft and, and put sure. Office and Excel out there. So I think it can have an impact for schools when they want to have a client side uh, solution. If you're, you know, still, you know, using Macs and, and have it migrated to uh, devices like Chromebooks uh, or iPads or other things like that, or, or even with iPads, you know, being able to have them. So it's nice that those will be available. Um, I don't think my personal productivity as an educator will be impacted by this. You know, I, I listened to you talk and I remember, and I'm trying to remember the context of this. I'm pretty sure this was on the MacBreak Weekly uh, podcast on the Twit Network. And Andy Anako, who is a technology writer, um, talked about when touch or when touch uh, capable Chromebooks, high end Chromebooks were first coming out. Uh, he uh, showed off a demo um, on, on like Instagram or something of him using that touch interface with the web-based iWork suite and said that and kind of the claim was that it was a, you know, full, a, a full featured office suite. And, and that, that was an interesting notion to me too at the time. But the thing is, is that Google apps has uh, in many ways caught up with the full feature suites and in other ways have exceeded those with sharing capability. And, you know, it's, it's just a different game than it was. And, and, and to be frank, I, when I am on a PC or I'm sorry, when I am on a Mac laptop or desktop, um, I'm, I'm just using Google anyways. Like it's Chrome and it's, it's, it's Google Docs, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I, I know I, it's, uh, I don't think it's, there will, there will never be one suite to rule them all. I really don't believe that. There's lots of ways that, that Office is still very dominant. There's lots of ways the Google apps is competitive and in, in certain categories dominant, but in, in the, the flat matter is we're always going to have two or three competing suites. And I think that's actually a very good thing. And by the way, I think I just set off my Google Home uh, because I said the word Google earlier. Well, there you go. Uh, but uh, it's listening. No. 
Um, but you know, the bottom line is, is that uh, it's not that Microsoft won, although they're a winner, but Microsoft, Google Apps, maybe to a lesser extent, I work that they're going to exist and compete and coexist in this world. So I, one more thought on this, and there's a little more discussion on this and I, and I thought we might, we might have, but this is good. Um, what was my other thought? Maybe not. <laughs> um, Peggy did, did just, uh, ask me to put the, the link and I will to the pop out chat. So for those live viewers, hello to Peggy. Hello to Ben. Hello to Simon. Uh, how exciting. Um, gosh, what was I going to say? Uh, it was very profound. Um, and I do not remember what it was. So yeah, we'll just move on. Okay. Well, um, I will take the next one. Um, we have two articles for oh, those oh, who. Sorry, sorry. Can I, That's okay. Go ahead. This is the way it happens. Uh, Jen Carey, who's been a guest on our show, um, had a nice post that I'll put a link to where she talks about collaboration. So bringing this back to the, the educational lens, what is our purpose? Why are we doing these things? And I definitely agree with Jen and, and the, the point which she was making that when we at, when we're asked about skills and what students should be doing in technology, collaborating, working with others. This is so important. Very few of us, you know, do our best work by ourselves alone, uh, you know, without the input and, 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 uh, assistance of others. So every idea gets better with feedback and, and that whole thing with collaboration, uh, whether you are using 365, which I haven't done much with, but certainly Google, you know, that's a persuasive reason to say we want our students to be using these tools and, and, you know, learning their school, their skills of collaboration. Absolutely. Sorry that my brain was just a little bit slow there. <laughs> getting the thought so but all right it's it's the springtime so i think it's natural for natural for all teacher teacher types so um on to some news from the uh, other uh, ecosystem um for those of you that are windows users and i am a part-time windows user as a, a windows 10 guy um the creators update was released um uh this week and last which is the fourth edition of Microsoft's Windows 10. Something that a lot of people are very surprised about, even those that are actively using Windows 10, is that uh, Windows has shifted its model quite dramatically away from the notion of, of buying versions of Windows. So you buy Windows XP, then you buy Windows 7, and you buy Windows 8, then you buy Windows 10. But instead, once you own Windows, Windows will continue to update the background to give you the newest version of the operating system. And right now, it looks like it's going to be about every eight to 12 months when a new version will um, uh, uh, update itself. And so much like having a Chromebook, much like having um, uh, uh, an iOS device, you will be offered updates as long as your hardware can handle um, the uh, handle the, the update. And so theoretically, you know, Windows 10 is forever. So it's, it's Windows and you, you have Windows on your machine. And so Windows Creators Update is the fourth um, edition of Windows 10. Um, and what's interesting about this one is that I do think the Creators Update is a bit of a pushy name in light of the, the features that it ended up making into this version of Windows 10. When they announced this in fall 2016, I think they intended on adding some, some, some greater collaborative and, and, and creative uh, functionality into the operating system and why that didn't make it in there. But there are a couple of interesting um, updates that I do want to highlight. Uh, Wes dropped in a great Lifehacker article 
um, on the newest uh, pieces. And then I also shared a blog post that I posted today on the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. And uh, to highlight the three that I thought were super interesting, um, first, there is now something called 3D Paint um, in um, uh, uh, Windows that comes with the Windows operating system, Windows 10 operating system, which is a three-dimensional paint program. Um, you know, paint has been a part of the Windows experience uh, since Windows 3.0. Um, so it's it's not surprising that that they're continuing that with with a, a more modern version of that. Um, I think this is a play on augmented reality. The so-called Microsoft Hololens um, might provide some opportunities at some point to be able to see rendered versions of 3D created items. And if you're using some of the super high-end hardware, like the huge desktop surface that Microsoft offers now that you can pull to you and draw and, and create on, I think that could be an interesting piece. Um, the second feature that I think is super interesting is so-called gamer mode or game mode. Um, which allows you to take a, a PC, even if it's relatively modest in its uh, uh, hardware abilities, and turn off some of the background processes and focus your efforts um, on a game when it's running. Now, what I think is interesting about this is that uh, you have to tell Microsoft which apps are games. It's not smart enough to understand that, um, uh, especially since that there are so many sources of games, it would have no idea how. So I did experiment in an early beta calling Adobe Illustrator a game and then turned on gamer mode. And, you know, I, I couldn't tell you know, with 100% certainty what it felt like. On the machine I was on, Illustrator was a little snappier, and I think it's a very clever way of dealing with some of the modest hardware that Windows comes on um, in, in the current ecosystem, that if you can take an app and give it all its hardware focus, game or not, I think that's a really interesting um, uh, piece. And then the third thing that I've noticed personally, and I've been running a beta uh, and then a release can of it for the last six weeks or so, is there's just a lot more polish. A lot of the things were really rough when Windows 10 was released fall 2015 have been polished up and it's starting to turn into a very mature, uh, very slick looking operating system. So uh, there's a link in my blog article. If you are running the home version, don't try this with your IT managed versions because your IT people direct which version of Windows is offered to your machine. Um, but if you have a home version of, of Windows 10 Home, Windows 10 Professional, Windows 10 Education, you can download a little applet from Microsoft. The link is in uh, my blog post that um, will uh, compel the update to start now if it hasn't been offered to you. Um, so Wes, a random question for you. I guess I don't know the answer to this. Are there Windows 10 or Windows machines on your campus? Oh yes, absolutely. In fact, I wanted I want to ask if anybody um, has a good cloning solution that they're using for imaging. Um, I just learned about Clonezilla this weekend, which is an open source tool, uh, and we're going to give that a try. We used to use uh, a ghost to do that. Uh, we've got two language labs at our middle school and high school that are Windows Seven still. And um, today I mentioned the Projector as a Geek of the Week a few weeks ago, and it finally arrived. And uh, boy, very underwhelming on the window on the performance side, just both both for Mac and, and Windows. Today I was using a Surface Book to um, hey, that's cool. Fog Project is that the yeah, that's the one I'll tell you about in a second. Okay, I did. That's cool. That the the, the pop up link just appeared right over right over you, huh? 
Well, it didn't come into the chat. It was just over you. And then Ben says that the live chat is awesome on an iOS device. It overlays the video on top. So that's cool. That's really cool. So anyway, yeah, I mean, we've got a, a number of, uh, of uh, admin, you know, administrators, um, staff, you know, using Windows PCs. Um, we're still in the process of migrating off those shares. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've still got them, um, a, a very significant um, shared folder for our high school or upper division. We just have migrated this semester fully into Google Drive app for Windows that, that puts that as a, as a, as like a drive letter, you know, on your machine where you can drag your files back and forth and not have to interface completely with the, the uh, web version of Google Drive. But anyway, we, de- we definitely do. We're cross-platform. Um, and um, hope, hope, hoping, though, I would say to streamline the management of, of all those devices and hence the, the quest for a good uh, cloning solution. So I think Simon's putting in something there, too. You may not be able to, to put the link in. Um, but I think, Jason, you can knight people since you're logged in as EdTechSR. Um, Peggy's got a little wrench next to her name in the chat. And I think that that means she's a moderator and can put in uh, links. So if, if you want to... To night and moder- as moderator, you know Ben or Simon or anybody else. Actually, actually, I'm logged into my as myself. So oh, you are okay. Well, we may yeah. we may not have any knighting knighting powers. So that's pretty uh, interesting. So, go, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to mention the Fox server. That's the that's the preferred solution amongst Montana uh, tech folks. So uh, it's open source. It's uh, um, it and it. I I have yet to hear someone in Montana that doesn't sing its praises. So that's the that's the cloning solution. And it's called state. Fog Server. Yep, fogproject.org. Oh, fog, fog Project. Okay, yeah. No, I found it. You know, things like that can absolutely change your life as a technology person. <laughs> you know, yep. you, just, you, you want that to. And and honestly, I would say that. The, the ability to blow away your system, this is on Chrome, so easy, right? Power wash. Yeah. The ability to yeah. blow away your system, have it completely clean, and then, and then start fresh is not only necessary for our, our laptops and our desktops, it's important for our, our handheld devices, our tablets, and it'll be interesting to see in that world what, what, when, what Microsoft does and Windows. I had to do that with a Windows machine. In fact, I, this is an interesting little side item to do a full diagnostic on a surface book was going to take multiple hours and I was going to have to come back for the Microsoft store. Um, Apple's able to do that in house and it, you know, takes about three or four minutes. Um, and you've got a full hardware diagnostic as far as whether you've got problems that you need to, that you can't just resolve with software. I ended up doing a full restore on a surface book a couple of weeks ago. Um, and you know, it was, it, it, it took a while, but I just think that many of us probably listening to this podcast, uh, are the IT people for our, our families, right? And so we end up being called on to help rescue folks that run into malware and, you know, slow machines and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, would that, those, that's the kind of functionality, you know, Fog Project, uh, Clonezilla, you know, the imaging solutions. We have a, we have a Mac OS 10 server, you know, that, that lets us image our, our Macs just, you know, very, very quickly. Uh, important thing, uh, in education and also an important thing in, in your life outside of school or work when you are working with others in your life that have, you know, gotten tangled up in some other software that they shouldn't have perhaps and their devices running slow. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Wes, take us somewhere next. 
Okay, let me get flip over to my iOS device here. Um, I'll talk about the Google Draw AI machine learning articles. I, I grouped these together. Uh, Google, a few, I don't know, months ago, had a pretty cool website where you could draw something and it would try and guess what you were drawing. And just like they had some like 911, that no, wasn't 911, 811, 711, I don't remember what it was, but they had that service, right, where you would call in to get directory assistance, but they were gathering all of the voice data and that was helping build their machine learning AI algorithms for speech recognition. Similarly, this, um, you know, website, which will guess your, your drawings was developing this capability to identify drawings. And so, uh, there's a Google blog post from April 11th called Fast Drawing for Everyone. And then Eric Kurtz has a nice, uh, April 13th post called Using Google Auto Draw for Sketch Notes, Infographics, Drawings, and More. So you can draw a dog or a house and, and then hit the magic wand or button or whatever. And it will, you know, try to guess what it is that you're drawing and then make a fairly, uh, good looking icon, you know, based, uh, version of that item. Um, the other article I put on in, under this list is, is from information management, which I actually haven't heard of this before this website, uh, April 18th. Uh, and it says majority of consumers fear engaging with AI. And so we've got a situation where lots of people have seen the Terminator, right? I think it says 25% of people fear a AI based Armageddon. Um, people are scared of that, but many of them do not, they cannot define what AI is and are not realizing that when you're using Siri, when you're using Google Home, Alexa, uh, and other things too, you are a beneficiary of artificial intelligence and machine learning. So I thought that was, was interesting. And, and I definitely think I'm going to try to do some, uh, some workshops this summer on sketch noting and just promote that. I, I think that we need, I mean, this is a reason to have a tablet, right? I can have a stylus. I can draw on this thing. And if I have a fancy, you know, Chromebook that's a flipped yoga, you know, all, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, you, you'll have that capability too. And I, and I think it's important for us not to lose that, to just think, oh, it's all keyboarding guys. It's just all about typing. No, not really. And visual representation is really important. We live in a, in a visual age. And so I would encourage folks to, to check out uh, Google auto draw and see what that can do. And, and, you know, give a challenge to your students uh, in terms of how they could look at using that to represent key ideas and key concepts from um, a lesson and then represent those as notes and, and maybe a, a narrated slideshow or all other kinds of things that you can do with uh, visuals that you create after you watched a video or taken notes um, in a lecture. Awesome. And I should say I lost at least an hour to auto draw <laughs> when it first came out. And I also saw the, uh, um, 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 the, the application to sketch noting, which is something that I've now taught a uh, workshop twice on that particular topic. And it's, it's, there's actually a lot of really interesting pedagogy behind that. There's, uh, the process of turning something you're listening to and, and audibly consuming into mm -hmm. a note. There's a lot of interesting processes that are going oh, on in the background. Yeah. And, um, I think it takes actually one of the, the biggest challenges that we've worked with and, and, and uh, Mike Gustelli and I te teach a lot of workshops together throughout the year and we, we taught that sketch there's that sketch noting workshop um and it, we've run into the same issue a couple of times where people are just really embarrassed by the lack of drawing skills uh, which is funny because neither mike and i can draw worth anything but um which is we kind of use that as the point that it doesn't need to be art but this may help take some of that um 
um, some of that uh, um, fear, uh, yeah, fear and and paranoia about or um, an embarrassment about your lack of skills in this, um, and and really uh, take that to the next level. So I'm hoping they continue to develop this tool and maybe even turn it into something, um, you know, um, even more extensive. You know, allow you yeah. to save and to use use this AI um, in in other contexts. Or to have an API that could be called on, right, for yeah. other apps. You know, in my sketch noting app to be able to come over here and whip out a dog, but then, oh, look, I want to get that dog. I mean, I've, I've done a little bit of that with the noun project where I'll do a screenshot, mm-hmm. yeah, and, you know, crop it and bring it over. But, um, I am a hundred percent with you on that idea of the cognitive, uh, challenge in yeah. a very positive way to seeing content, hearing content, having it pass into your brain, down your arm and out your hand, right, yes. in a visual. And staying with the speaker and all that. I mean, it's just, it, I am not a good artist, but it really doesn't matter in terms of sketchnoting because the point is not creating fine art. It's representing ideas visually and being able to retell them after the fact. I mean, that's the, the ethic of, of sketchnoting. And in fact, Sylvia Duckworth at ISTE last year had probably the best little mini session where she just showed tips and tricks for using procreate procreate is my favorite app. And I'd love to know actually Ben is in the, the chat and he is a iPad pro user and loves the pencil. So I'd like to know Ben, if you've what your favorite you know app is for sketch noting, but um, I'm, I'm hoping to, to get more tips with that. And it's, there are certain things that you get a sense of like, this is a Mardi Gras float worth being on. This is a bandwagon. What I want to champion and hold this torch high. And I, I put sketch noting on that list. So, Okay, well, um, to maybe a more darker side of technology, um, really interesting study released in the last week that, that is uh, covered in Gizmodo. Kids who use touchscreen devices sleep less at night, and there was a, a interesting study released um, by the uh, Birkbeck University of London, um, a research, research researcher team led by Tim Smith, uh, wanted to take a, a modern look at a traditional um, a, a, a data set, which is that, you know, for 50 years, uh, there has been, um, some pretty compelling evidence that, that televisions, um, and video games had been linked to sleep problems, um, in children, um, but they hadn't done a lot of modern research utilizing, uh, uh, uh handheld devices, tablets, laptops, uh, cell phones. And so the bottom line is, is that they took, um, a, a number of, uh, sorry, 715 infants and toddlers, um, age six to 36 months. Um, they utilize an online survey and I'll admit that I, uh, something that I do now, um, more frequently because of my training, um, as part of my doctoral program is I do like to dig around the pedagogy of surveys, which is, uh, uh, um, uh, and the research design of surveys, which is, I think is really important to this. But the bottom line is, as they found, found similar problems with screen time for, for younger kids and that, uh, each hour a child spent on a smartphone or tablet resulted in 26 minutes less sleep and about uh, 10 minutes more daytime sleep um, uh, as kids were tired and, and needed to sleep during the day, amounting to a net loss of 15.6 minutes less total sleep for hour of screen time use. Um, so one of the things that I, I think is important to talk about here, obviously, you know, banning and in fact, uh, the article, and I'm pretty sure the study um, uh, goes as far as saying that the, the key here is not banning the technology, but in other words, being thoughtful about its application. Um, but it's more proof 
that it's it's not about technology good or technology bad. It's about that you're introducing all sorts of amazing things um, into the world, and you want to be mindful about this, and you want to be uh, judicious, judicious about how you apply these extremely powerful tools. Um, Wes, are you surprised by the results of this um, a study at all? You know, I think this is a great study if you're an academic or just wanting to think about research to analyze. I know in, in some of my research classes for the doctorate, I had to, you know, analyze whether the conclusions were appropriate and, you know, we were jumping to too many conclusions. And, and really in this article, and they do a nice job covering that, correlation is not causality, right? right. And there, is yep. a, there are a lot of complex things happening that they talk about not controlling for, one of which, um, you know, is just the idea of artificial light. Uh, we've got some things now built into iOS as well as the Mac operating system, which can, you know, change the shade of light that, that is being created by the device. And, um, it's a, it's, it, there's a complex web here. So I am having my little academician hat on saying, let's not be too hasty tree beard, uh, to, you know, rush to conclusions. Um, Certainly balance in that whole perspective, uh, of being mindful and being intentional and all that with our, with our screen time. Um, you know, I, I'm, we're thinking about doing a digital citizenship. Actually, we might do a, a face to face meetup, but then do it, do a webcast, uh, which we archive for parents in early June. Cause, you know, this summer, what family is not going to wrestle with screen time, right? And, and the idea of do we have boundaries? Do we have limits? What are those? And so I was thinking about, you know, offering this up as an article that we might, you know, chat about and yep. use the catalyst for conversation. So as Ben says, though, how much do we need sleep? Really? <laughs> Man. Uh, well, I got to say, 25-year-old Jason's 100% with you, sir. So I yeah. sleep most of the 90s and 2000s. So um, now it's like I, I give anything for sleep. Um, but you know, and it, it reminds me of a, this is probably a, a, a short rabbit hole, but you know, part of what's interesting about this is there hasn't been as much technological development to try to counter these factors as I assumed there would be. And that was obviously apps that will try to take the blue light and change it and da, 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 da. But I was really surprised that more tablet devices, and I'm not talking about e-readers. I'm talking about tablet devices. Didn't didn't adopt the e-ink technology, the thing that that appears in Kindles, um, the the black and white Kindles. Um, I, I some people hacked together some um, when the uh, Barnes and Noble Nook was first released. They turned them into Android tablets with e-ink readers, and I always thought that was super interesting. Even though um, I never tried to do it myself, but. Um, you know, I think that would be an interesting thing to do. I'd love to use my reading apps or my web-based apps with an e-ink screen, um, you know, in order to have it not impact my sleep. But it just never seems to have really happened. Something I'm reminded of, a little, little Bob Sprankle. This is a, a photo that Bob did uh, in Portsmouth before that bridge got taken down. Bob was one who um, got me to, to, you know, go ahead and get a Kindle thinking about how I wouldn't be as tempted to multitask and go to social media and things like that. If I was on this device mm -hmm. that was just for reading, it wasn't for, you know, being on Twitter and, and using other kinds of social media. There are, there's a ton of research that needs to be done and investigations into this. Um, we've got a teacher at our school who likes to, to remind me that we're all, you know, building the plane as, as we are flying it and we're the guinea pigs and, you know, we're, we're yeah. all, all of these kind of things are definitely having, 
impact on our on our lives and on our minds. So I mentioned a few weeks ago, Lee Colbert uh, down in Florida had had a a post a couple of years ago just about what do you look at first? Like how many minutes does it take when you wake up before you're looking at your phone? And what is it that you're looking at? And so just the exercise of being deliberate about that and experimenting for yourself with a delay and maybe, you know, having a little bit of a fast with your phone, you know, reading something analog or or doing something else. I think all all of that is healthy because if we just put ourselves on autopilot and we and we see this with adults as well as with kids we we tend to see i think an overconsumption and perhaps um you know some of these effects that that may not necessarily be be good for living a life of balance so encouraging people to be mindful and more intentional with their media consumption is a very good thing absolutely so jason uh, your, your your image is frozen for me but i can still hear you fine so you may be having uh, a temporary bandwidth uh, crisis. Here, I'll get on my Google router and give myself more bandwidth. <laughs> um, where should we go next? Um, I would love to go to the article about uh, the tricorder. Um, this is Ars Technica from April 14th. Underdog team wins millions in competition to make a real-life tricorder. And so this is a competition that... Um, Diamantes, I'm trying to think of his first name. He was a keynote speaker at the a creativity conference that we had here in Oklahoma City probably at least four or five years ago. Um, and they have the X prizes. And so this was an X prize. And my wife is the big Star Trek fan in our family, but the, the tricorder from the original Star Trek is this device that uh, Dr. McCoy would have and he could, you know, put it, you know, oh, not not intrusively um, inserted anywhere, but just holding it over the person. And it was able to scan and diagnose and, and say, you know, what kinds of of ail, ailments and, and illnesses or, or, or conditions a person might have. So uh, number one, it's just really exciting that Real life tricorders are are being uh, <laughs> worked on, um, and it's also really neat from a STEM maker education DIY perspective that this was a family based team. Now the leader of it is a doctor, um, and it was a two point six million dollar prize. Um, but uh, the team was led by Dr. Basil Harris, an emergency medicine doctor from Pennsylvania who founded Final Frontier Medical Devices with friends and three of his siblings to come up with the device. They will now move their beta testing onto stages of development, potentially FDA testing. Uh, so, you know, several things about this. I mean, we need more doctors in the world. Um, this is not going to replace doctors, but there's a lot of places where having the ability to diagnose some, um, you know, very damaging and fatal, potentially fatal conditions can really be a big deal. So they created a shoebox kit that has several different diagnostic devices in it. And they actually, the this competition, the XPRIZE started in 2012, and they ended up kind of modifying the term. So uh, what they needed to be able to diagnose were 13 different conditions. And need We seem to have lost Dr. Fryer. I'm assuming that's um, Wes and that I'm I'm the only one solo. Um, I don't know as much about this topic, so I'm going to wait for just a moment.
And I'm going to go ahead and jump in another topic. So um, I'd like to, to highlight a New York Times article, um, really interesting New York Times article, uh, that social media is not contributing significantly to political polarization in the United States, says uh, paper says. Uh, this is from the April 13th, 2017 edition of the New York Times. And basically, uh, there was a study uh, conducted by the National Bureau of Economic Research that suggested that those who are most polarized in, in the United States political realm are actually those that are least likely by either age or condition to utilize social media. And it's an interesting data set that, that this particular study looks at because it's, it's attempting to answer, uh, you know, questions about our, our current political condition um, in the United States and really around the world. Uh, the United States being one example of the, the uh, expansion of populism in Western European democracies and also in the United States. And what the study claims is that the, those that are most polarized in the United States happen to be those that are least likely to utilize social media. Um, the claim being, of course, that social media didn't have as great of an impact on the 2016 election, for example, than um, one might assume because those that are most polarized weren't using social media anyways. And I think it's an interesting take on things because it, it's felt to me, and, and I've been someone that's been pushing this as much as, as anyone else, that the Facebook problem, the fake news problem, the um, uh, the movement away from more traditional media sources is really what helped participate or, or per, per, uh, precipitate the uh, 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 rise of, of populism in the United States, uh, particularly in the 2016 election, whereas this data set would suggest that it, it really doesn't. And I think it's something we need to keep an eye on um, uh, because I, I would hate to overreact to say that social media is at fault. But I do think there's been some very interesting things that have happened um, in, in the last couple of months related to the perception that social media had a maybe a large or, or overly large impact on the 2016 election. For example, um, I've noticed two or three times now that Facebook is desperate to teach me how to spot fake news. Um, which I think is a, a very interesting piece. I, I don't feel like that I need that lesson per se, but if I'm getting it, that means that other users are as well. And I'd like to think that Facebook is, is for helping its users find out more about uh, news sources that are, are, are not traditional news sources and figuring out what is a, a source you can believe 100% of the time and what are sources that you believe somewhat less than that. And I think it's definitely part of the um, architecture um, of dealing with the impact of social media on our news um, in, in the United States and, and really around the world. So, um, I just found out that Wes has restarted his router, <laughs> and he has returned. Good evening, Dr. Fryer. Well, that has not happened in a while. You know, I, I haven't restarted my router in probably a couple months. So, yeah, there you go. Sorry about that. That's okay. I actually went on to a different article because I don't know very much about, about your topic. No, no. If you want to jump back into that, please do. That's just fine. Well, I just – I think – I don't know where I cut off. Did I get to say curiosity link? Did you hear that part? I did, you, did, I did, you, did, you did not get to that part yet on this end. Okay, yeah. So I would say this article is a great curiosity link to share with students. You know, what a great writing prompt. Uh, what kind of possibilities does this portend for, you know, areas of the world where there, you know, are, are very, not very many doctors, but also for places where there are more doctors, right? Self-diagnosis right. is an issue now uh, when you can have a tricorder that's going to diagnose things that, you know, on the on the whole, I think it's going to be fantastic, but pretty amazing that that uh, th that these kind of technologies 
uh, are impacting the biological sciences. And that's another really big takeaway is we need to be encouraging, you know, students to to have interest and to pursue chemistry and biology and and technology and utilizing, you know, technology for um, all kinds of, of, of biological and uh, and life science applications. Absolutely. Well, I talked about the New York Times article about the study that um, uh, one data set, set suggests that the most polarized Americans were not as impacted by social media as many had feared in regards to our current political condition. But I think I probably talked about as extensively with that that topic as we can go. So why don't you pick up one more topic, Wes? And well, then... I, actually, let me tag on to that because I'll, I'll go back to the recording and, and listen to your commentary. But I will, yeah, I'll, I'll, t- I'll add an article onto this. And, man, this is something that I listened to this whole thing because I've mentioned this before. But a lot of times the articles that we'll talk about I will save into Pocket and the app Pocket. And you can then tap listen. And so mm-hmm. I can be in the car and, and listen. This is one I listen to. Um, it's by Nicola Dan- Daniloff uh, from the Singularity blog. And it says, uh, why the politics of the future is technology and technology is the future of politics. And uh, I, I will not be able to very intelligently comment on it. But in part, what it says is that the results that we've seen in elections are not accidents. It's not just, um, you know, something that, oh, wow, that happened. And, and wasn't that a weird quirk? Um, you know, the, the, the economic systems that we've had, which are very much driven by technology, um, thinking about means of production and just the ripple effects. It's we're, we're in the midst of seismic change. And among other things, he talks about how we're going to have to address. He doesn't say it this way, but, you know, it's it's renegotiating the social contract. You know, it's it's uh, the, the widening gap. In fact, I think he quotes Diamantis, who's the sponsor of the X prizes, saying that we're going to have the Will it be the first world's trillionaires or do we already have trillionaires? Um, and so th- this is this is an article, you know, that does talk about technology and the impact of technology, but on politics. And I guess I would characterize it as a wake up call. I'm, I'm seriously going to have to read and listen to this several times because this is a this is deep stuff. But it it's challenging. <laughs> you know, what do we think of as the status quo with politics and where where do we need to move? And if we don't move there, then there's there's really there's there's big hazards in terms of I'm thinking about debate DAs, right? And things that you're going to you're going to run as far as ne- very, very uh, end of the worldish, um, you know, social social disorder uh, sorts of, of arguments to say that we we have to look at, at at who is benefiting financially and how things are distributed in the society and address those gaps. Otherwise, um, we're, we're headed for a future that's not going to be fun for anyone. Absolutely. Did you talk so about should, your, your Chromebook? Um, I did not yet. Should we maybe move into that? You bet. Well, I guess okay. that's, that's the week of the week. Well, do we want to do another article before then? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, sure. Let's do one more. We could do a quick one here. Um, uh, da, 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 da. We've covered pretty well. Um, I guess the Verizon one. Did you, we talk about that one? The we haven't yet. 
Yeah, go. Let's let's talk about that one. All right. So Ars Technica, um, April 18th, Verizon buying 37 million miles of fiber to boost its wireless network. Um, and the most significant piece of this is that Verizon's vision of the future in terms of home connectivity and being able to have gigabit speeds, like think of Google Fiber, is not bringing fiber to your home, but bringing fiber to your neighborhood and then using 5G wireless cellular technology for that last mile to take it from whatever node it gets to in your neighborhood to your house and those kinds of speeds. So, you know, similarly to how we've seen this kind of plateau with, with um, laptop and, and also maybe tablet, you know, technology, we were talking about this today. Like, do you really need more than eight gigs of Ram on your laptop? I mean, probably not, you know, the amount of impact you're going to see is pretty small. Um, I mean, how much more speed do you need? Uh, you you want to be able to, to uh, have high definition web streams. I think we're on the Netflix plan for four different streams and our 120 to 150 meg down, you know, cable modem, it, it can handle that at this point. Um, what's it, my, my sister and, and her family in Kansas City are on Google Fiber, right? So they are living the, the residential dream now in terms of Basic. Well, it's like you at work, right, Jason? What did you say your fastest download has been at work? This will blow um, someone's mind. Eight hundred, eight hundred uh, megabits. Right. Yeah. Yep. Without without students on campus, it's it regularly gets at seven eight hundred. Yeah. And we're we're still on the upgrade. Cox Communications, our local cable provider, donated an upgrade for the arts festival we had two weeks ago, and we went from three hundred megs down to one point three gigs down. And so I have seen you know some some tests on on Ethernet where we're we're getting into the seven hundreds and eight hundreds, you know, up yep. and down which is pretty, pretty astounding. So anyway, this is just a, an interesting uh, article thinking about, you know, where, where we're going next. And, and that we, we don't need a crystal ball to see this, right? You know, processors are faster and cheaper and the connectivity that we have wireless and wired is, is faster and faster. Um, in all of that comes net neutrality, comes prioritization of packets, comes, you know, the future of the internet and things like that and the commercialization of that, which this article doesn't talk about. But interesting to see what they're going to do and hopefully how they're going to bring more competition to areas yeah. because there's a lot of parts of the country where you just don't have much choice. And so I will personally be excited, just like we have the LTE internet, which if my router reset didn't work, I was going to be tethering to my, my, my T-Mobile uh, iPhone. Um, it's astounding to be able to have that kind of, of speed and exciting to think about um, alternatives other than having to run fiber to everybody's house, which is probably going to be prohibitively expensive in a lot of cases. I had another article right under that that's not um, that's not quite related to that directly, but it is about T-Mobile. Uh, T-Mobile uh, dominated a Spectrum auction recently that I think Comcast and... I want to say the Dish Network had also bought a bunch of a bunch of Spectrum up for for whatever reason, but um, they are going to be able to expand their nationwide LTE um, uh, network. And I got to say, um, I am super impressed with my my T-Mobile service um, on my cheap Amazon phone. And last month, um, you mentioned how much bandwidth is enough. Well, I was I thought I was about as aggressive a band user as I would ever be. Um, uh, outside my home, right? So this is on, on my, my phone, 23 gigs total. Like I, I thought that, you know, this might be a 30 or 40 gig month for me and that wow. I'd run into the scaling back and I did a total 23. And I, 
I wasn't even trying to be careful. Like I was streaming, you know, Netflix to myself. Uh, I, I've, I've set up a little scheme to where I, I have a, a Chromecast I carry in my suitcase now that I put into hotel televisions that goes back to my phone, Wi-Fi network so I can stream, I can Chromecast to a, a, a television over the LTE network. And so I was just being ridiculous, you know, drunken sailor of Wi-Fi, right? Uh, give me another uh, Netflix show. And uh didn't matter. Like I, I hit 23 gigs, which is not even considered to be a heavy user, according to T-Mobile. So they're expanding their network. Um, you know, and I think that endless, endless bandwidth is 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 not that far away for everyone. Right. And so what does your world look like? Here is the crystal ball, right? What does the world look like when you have access to essentially infinite bandwidth, your local machine, whether it's on your wrist or it's in your laptop or it's on your, your phone has, you know, incredible blazing speeds. But even beyond that, you have access to a cloud-based AI that is able to intelligently assist you in your research, your problem solving, your development. That is, I would, West Fryer would say, absolutely the world that we are moving towards. Now, the control of AI is something that, you know, Elon Musk and others are struggling to not just have in the hands of a few corporations and governments, but with the open AI initiative to make that something that is accessible broadly because there's, you know, people who worry about just a few folks having that kind of access. But holy cow, what does the world look like? And, you know, what problems do you want to solve? What things do you want to invent when you are augmented cognitively in that way with these AIs? Yep. Hello, welcome to the future. And I would like to quote 1986 Jason when he first got a 24 baud modem. He said, "This is true speed," <laughs> and that's all. So that's right. That's right. All right. Well, I'm I'm so glad I was able to join you again yeah. and not have have the have you run solo. So that I was, I was going back in, in the chat. So thanks for, thanks for the uh, recommendation, Simon. And for the record, Simon is joining us from Australia today. So um, that is pretty awesome. I don't what, I wonder what time it is there uh, for him. He's recommended Dave Asprey um, as the bull. Is it, the, is it, is that, is that was bulletproof the same thing he was talking about? Um, well, there was some commentary about the note to self uh, podcast and then, uh, Anyway, shout outs in the in the chat. So we'll see if we can add some of those links as well. All right. Well, what is your geek of the week today, Jason? Well, I had mentioned that I had been saving up for a new Chromebook. Um, I bought a Chromebook first in um, it would have been spring 2014. So this was a, a what, the original Dell Chromebook 11, and um, it it was a good, pretty hardy Chromebook. Was uh, like a, like a, I had recently put it to rest or something. It still works just fine, but. Um, I wanted to update to something a little more modern, um, and I was actually waiting around for the Asus Chromebook Flip, um, the the newest version of it, uh, which is uh, a, a very advanced machine. Um, but I was going to wait for the one with the M7 processor in it. And last night or last week, um, I was uh, skulking around uh, Reddit on the Chrome OS board, and someone had posted a link. Um, to uh, a deal on Amazon where the $1,100 HP Chromebook 
or HP Chromebook 13G1, which is a professional-aimed quality Chromebook. It has an M7 processor in it, 16 gigabytes of RAM, and a 32-gigabyte um, SSD drive was available for half price um, uh, from a, a, a sketchy-looking store on Amazon. And so uh, someone had said they bought one and got it, and so I took the took the leap and it arrived um, yesterday and I immediately bought a case for it. But um, I now um, own um, this you know, beautiful um, new Chromebook. And I, I'm not going to lie, it is exactly the same feel keyboard-wise, monitor screen-wise, touchpad-wise, weight. Um, it's all metal chassis. It is a MacBook Air for all practical purposes. And um, it's got a beautiful, super high-resolution screen. I can't remember the resolution. It's like 3600 by 1600 or something ridiculous. And um, I've been just carrying it around for a day. But but so far, you know, for a 500-and-something-dollar Chromebook, um, it's speedy, it's fast, it's responsive, and... It was. It has Google Apps available on it. So touchscreen? Touch no touchscreen, but that's actually something that I'm not that disappointed about, to be honest. Um, but the Google App Store works on on the beta channel on this Chromebook, um, and I downloaded a half dozen applications yesterday. So I have Spotify. I have um, Outlook for one Microsoft email address that I, I monitor. I have a, a web based. Um, music player that I used to play music that's sitting on my Google Drive that I like a lot. Uh, I installed an Angry Birds game just to see what it was like, and um, it, they work all wonderfully. Um, I, I also put Instagram and Twitter with their 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 uh, Android apps, um, and it's, it's great. So, so far, so good, and I'll probably, I want to be able to show it off tonight, uh, the, the hardware itself, which, again, it's I can't express enough how high quality this keyboard is. And you know, this is not painted over plastic. This is straight up, you know, uh, uh, aluminum. Aluminum. If we're going uh, to uh, Apple it. But um, I would have a hard time telling this apart from a MacBook Air. And it's a backlit keyboard as well, correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. And so super great. So I'm really happy with it. And I look forward to carrying this probably mo- most likely to be my daily carry in my bag. Awesome. Yeah. Get get a license to to carry that open carry yeah. baby open open carry laws in effect in Montana for yep it is in more ways than one all right so, so I I went ahead and and to, did three geeks of the week so I'll try to go quickly but uh, the K twelve online conference if you are not aware is a wonderful opportunity to learn bunches and to also connect with others and so the the conference has been different this year because instead of just everything in two weeks it's been in four different strands this is actually the, the 2016 conference continuing and the last strand is creativity and on April 24th and 29th we've got videos and Google Hangouts coming with educators from Australia, Austria, China, Laos, Norway, and the United States. It appears we have lost Dr. Fryer. Wes?
Okay, well, I'm going to answer one question from, from chat. Uh, thank you, George, to ask how heavy the Chromebook is. It is 2.1 pounds. So I would say it's maybe a titch lighter than a, a typical MacBook Air 13. Um, but for all practical purposes, if I held one in one, one hand, one in the other, I'd have a really hard time telling them apart either by weight or by uh, feel. So... Um, I believe we are at the end of our episode. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode number 48. My name is Jason Neifer. I am available on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach, and you can see my blog at blog.ncc.org. Um, Wes Fryer um, is W. Fryer on Twitter, and he blogs at speedofcreativity.com. We are here every Wednesday night at uh, 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain Time, where we like to uh, do the episode live. If you want to join us and, and join our chat room and talk back and forth with our regular guests um, in, in the chat room, we more than welcome you each week. Otherwise, you can find the podcast um, in the Apple Podcast uh, uh, section of the iTunes Store. You can find us on Stitcher. You can find us um, on Pocket Cast or wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. Again, thank you for watching and have a great week. Thank you.